0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Thursday, January the 10th. 2012, and this is episode 1054 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, we're gonna have a good one today. Uh, I had a conversation yesterday with Ben Falk of Whole Systems Design uh, about seeds and seed saving, and the problem of Monsanto buying up more and more companies and even small independent companies getting some of their seeds from subsidiaries of Monsanto like uh, Samanis which companies like Johnny Selected Seeds which was what Ben was shocked to find out were buying some of their seeds from Samanis. Uh, additionally companies like Burpee who have been long trusted by gardeners, have been buying seeds from Samanis for a long time and some of the seeds they buy from Samanis uh, absolutely are uh, of Monsanto origin. A, a perfect example with Burpee the Ruby Queen corn they sell, it's a—it's actually a really cool corn. It's a hybrid. It's not a GMO, but it does come from Samanis, and I believe it was developed with research by Monsanto. So there's this concern, like, when I buy my seeds, how do I know I'm not getting GMO? Even though I'm going to save seeds, most of us have to buy seeds here and there somewhere. Most of us... Frankly, we like to support the work of small seed companies to keep them in business, and we try to buy a little bit of stuff every year anyway from a few different companies just to do that. So how do we balance all this? How do we save our own seeds? Why do we save our own seeds? How do we keep ourselves from feeding the beast, so to speak, so that our money's not going to feed the very things we oppose? We'll talk about all that and more today. Uh, Before I get into the typical housekeeping, I want to give you guys an announcement of what to expect In the next couple weeks, and that is a lot of, uh, interruption of the survival podcast, a lot of episodes not happening, uh, through the, from the 14th through about the 28th, uh, the whole second half of January. I'll be doing episodes when and as I can. We have a, a crazy bug out plan basically to get moved back to our new property in Texas. I'm going to tell you guys what the plan is so you can understand why you might get an episode or two each week and that might be about it. Uh, we have to leave uh, Saturday morning and we're driving down, spending some time with our son and we're closing on Tuesday the 15th so I can probably do something Monday remotely and get it up for you guys and maybe Tuesday, I don't know. Uh, we are then going to drive back Tuesday evening after we close and drop some stuff off at the property. We're going to be here Wednesday. We're going to pack up all of our stuff on Wednesday. And on Thursday, we're turning straight around with two trucks instead of a truck and a car this time and going right back down. And uh, just to get a lot of the stuff that's loose, that won't pack well in a big container truck and things like that that are easily damaged. Two, two runs, one with a car and a truck, car staying behind. And the next run with two pickup trucks, both trucks coming back. Um, then, that following week, we're having a large container dropped off by roadway. Uh, we're packing that up. They'll eventually come back and get it, and we're bugging out the end of that week, uh, heading on down with the dogs and the cats this time. Uh, and then we're looking at, like, our stuff showing up on the 28th, and not having internet in the house till probably the 29th or the 30th. So I will be without internet access down there for a while. So, this is going to be a little bit complicated. And, uh, just expect, you expect nothing, and whatever you get is what I can make happen. That's, that's the best way I can put it. I'm sorry, but this is, this is how things worked out. It wasn't supposed to be this way. We were supposed to get a lot of this done during the winter shutdown that we do every year, but the people in the financial world had other plans. Now, before we get into the how, what, and why of seed saving today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, Western Botanicals. We're going to talk about saving seeds, and I'm all about growing stuff, including herbs. And uh, I try to always rely on natural, gentle remedies whenever I can. I don't like using drugs, Uh, uh, period. I just don't. Uh, legal, illegal prescription over-the-counter. I mean, I use them when they're necessary. I store uh, medications for times of need, but I try to use them only when necessary. And that means I turned to herbals a lot. And I was, you know, I was really grateful that we found a company like Western Botanicals that could be trusted in the industry. Uh, the herbal and supplement industry is probably more rife with fraud and ridiculous claims and nonsense than anything else in the world. From colloidal silver will cure liver cancer to God knows what other kind of crap. You'll get none of that at Western Botanicals. Real people that really care about you, that will help you make a decision. They provide a great premium membership for free for your first year. That's a $50 value to all Member Support Brigade members. They give you 25% off everything. That alone pays for your first year of Member Support Brigade as well. If you can think of it, if it's an herb and it's legal, you'll find it there. And it's all either organ- organically grown or wildcrafted. Next up today, uh, Backwoods Home Magazine. I was really happy to bring them on as a new sponsor when I had a spot open, you know, years without having a a spot open, really. And it opened and Dave Duffy was ready to step up. And I was like, you know, I'm today I am I am taking on a sponsor whose work I've read for years and, and, and who actually helped shape a lot of my libertarian ideals and fundamentals. It's uh, a pretty awesome thing that today that we have them as a sponsor. They're a huge source of knowledge. Check them out. And I was just in their magazine featured in their Making a Living section, How to Make a Living in Rural Life. Check them out. Again, BackwoodsHome.com. Next up, remember to check out TSPGear.com. And right now we're running a sale. Actually, we're not running a sale. We're running a promotion in conjunction with Survival Gear Bags. Uh, not buying from the gear store. You go buy from survival gear bags, you buy enough stuff and you get some free uh, TSP gear. So I'll put a link to the notes on that as as well today. And uh, we're working to bring that gear shop up to speed and, and really uh, put some really cool stuff in there for you guys. And we're doing it slowly, a little bit at a time, so that we keep the situation cash flow positive. And we don't end up with a bunch of inventory nobody wants to buy. We test things a little out of time. If they sell well, we bring something else, and we keep doing that. And that way, we'll be able to give you what you want, and we'll be able to uh, keep the gear shop running full steam ahead this time around. Uh, that we're, you know, we've brought it back after a hiatus for a while. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members, and you'll help support the show at about eighteen point three cents an episode. Now let's get into the main topic of today's show. So. I got this email from Ben yesterday, and unfortunately I deleted it and cleaned it out the deleted items folder because I was going to look it up to read it to you on the show. But this was basically the thing. Hey, guys, we need to really teach seed saving more, and uh, we need to tell people things like, you know, he just found out that a lot of him and his friends apparently had relied on a company called Johnny Selected Seeds, which is a long, well-known, long uh, uh, seed company. Uh, that apparently is buying at least some of their seeds from Semantis. and Semantis is a subsidiary owned by Monsanto. This is the first thing that we need to understand, though. Our number one way to combat GMO when it comes to our gardens is to first thing we do, everybody do this with me right now, take a deep breath in, count to three on your inhale, take a deep breath out, count to three after your exhale, breathe in again, breathe out again, Relax okay because there is so small a number of genetically modified seed available to the home gardener today anyway it's not really worth worrying about at the level that we do that's that's number 1 number 2 if it's open pollinated or heirloom in the listing breathe in Breathe out, relax, stop listening to these seeds have not been genetically modified in any way because if it's heirloom or open pollinated, these seeds have not been genetically modified in any way. Just just relax. That's the first thing we can all do with the seeds that we buy every day is we can relax. And then we can understand the three different categories of seeds that are out there and what each of those categories means and does not mean. The first category is an open-pollinated variety, often called an heirloom. All this means is that if you have two pepper plants and they're the same variety and all the pollination happens between those two plants or the plant is self-fertile like many peppers are, or actually all peppers are, and it's fertilized itself... And you cut a pepper open, you take the seeds out, and you plant them next year. You'll get a plant that's very much identical to the plant you had the year before. It'll change. you get some of the regional adaptations and things like that we'll talk about a bit. But basically, it will rep- rep- uh, reproduce true to type. Okay? That's it. That's the whole thing. All the work has been done. Selective breeding, multi-generational breeding, proving out the gen- genotypes, the phenotypes, All that work has been done for you, and as long as you keep it pure and keep it only pollinating with its own type, you'll get a continuous, repeatable result. This is why it's so popular with people that are into sustainable agriculture, preppers, homesteaders, because I can save my seed and I avoid the expense next year. There's some other huge benefits that far outweigh the cost of a pack of seeds for most of us that I'll get into in a bit, but that is open pollinated, A hybrid. A hybrid is something like, and we can't—we are not even talk about making our own hybrids because hybrids are not evil. A hybrid would be a bell pepper crossed with a jalapeno. There's actually a reason to do this, and the results are quite interesting. I'll tell you about that in a bit, right? But that is one example. When you cross a jalapeno and a bell pepper, and you save the seed and you plant it the next year, you will get a hybrid, which is called your F1. Just call it your first generation. We won't go into a deep genetics lesson today because I'll bore you. But it's your first generation of the cross. This is generally a good thing in certain ways. Now, there are places where hybrids maybe aren't as good as an open pollinated heirloom as far as vigor and things like that. But a lot of times, in that first generation, you get something called hybrid vigor. Which means the seed is just stronger, it's tougher, it's more big, grows faster, deeper roots, whatever it is. But you'll also get a combination, a combination of the two plants together. And it does matter which way you've gone. Have you taken the pollen from the jalapeno over to the bell and saved that seed? Or have you taken the pollen from the bell over to the jalapeno and saved its seed? And it's an interesting experiment to do in your own backyard with two open pollinated varieties, say California Wonder and Jalapeno M, and and isolate a couple things and tag them and mark them so you know, and plant them and see what you get. But that's a hybrid. It is a natural process. This is the important part, so you don't fear hybrids. Every single open pollinated heirloom seed that exists today, with very few exceptions, like let's say maybe Oroch, where the plant exists in the wild, exactly like it exists in our domesticated environment, went through this process and then was proven out. It's very important you understand this because this will, again, breathe in, breathe out, relax, stop listening to Alex Jones tell you that you need a tube of seeds for $400 or you're going to die from genetic modification, right? Stop listening to nonsense like that. What happens is that people go out and find like, a couple wild varieties of tomato in the desert, by the way. Tomato's a desert plant. And they put them together. They get a result. And then they like that result. And they want to repeat that result. This is where the hybrid becomes an issue if you want to save your seeds. So they, t- they get this nice result, this F1 generation result. And they save a bunch of seeds and they plant it next year. And you kind of don't know what you're going to get. You really don't know what you're going to get you're going to get just this, like, basically what happens is you have, like, a perfect blending of the genes, and now you get an unknown mixing of the genes in your next generation. It would be like this. If you got a shepherd. And a collie, a shepherd dog, and a collie dog, and you bred them together and got a a shepherd shepherd collie mix. Right? You're going to get a dog that looks a certain way. If you also did that with another shepherd and collie, and you took a collie and a shepherd in two separate pairs that looked very similar, classic German shepherd, classic collie dog, and you bred them, and then you got two puppies. Those two puppies, even though they came from two different parent, two different pairs of parents, four different sires. And, 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 you know, other uh, female dogs, and uh, you, you took their their babies and put them next to each other, they'd look very similar. Now, if I take a male from one pairing and a female from the one pairing, the other pairing, and I put those two together and breed them a year and a half down the line when they're old enough to breed, you would think I'd get a bunch of little shepherds in collies that'll look a lot like the parents. I won't. Some will look a lot like the parents. Some will look a lot like a German shepherd. Some will look, look like a big collie, right? A bigger collie with the shepherd size. You don't know what's going to come out. Now, if I take only the puppies that look a lot like their parents and start breeding them together, over time I can develop a completely new breed of dogs that basically look like a shepherd collie mix. But I can breed the breed to each other, and I can keep getting that result. That's how all the dogs got to. We can do the same thing with seeds. From our plants. So in that first generation, where we got that neat tomato out of two different wild tomato hybrids, and we we get we like this, we plant the next season. We have to plant a bunch more plants than we really need because about one in seven will look like the parent, and six out of seven you don't know what you're going to get. Usually the results are poor. You might find one that's actually really interesting, different but interesting. And then you might start this process with that one and segue off to its own thing, even from the same common ancestor. But if you save seed now in your next generation from those one in seven plants, and sometimes it's as low as one in 10, sometimes it's as low as one in 12, that produce an offspring that was true to type to the original, and you take those seeds and you plant them again in a third generation, you'll get a higher number that reproduce two to try it. But you'll still get a lot of that aren't so good. And then you do it again. And it usually takes between five and eight generations. to, And that would take five to eight seasons with vegetables, right? Longer with dogs, you know, maybe 10, 15 years of dog generations to do this. But you'll eventually prove out that genetic type. That seed will now pollinate itself and reproduce two to try it, And you have a new variety of open-pollinated seed. And if it stays around long enough, it'll become an heirloom. Because we call them heirlooms because they've been handed down from generation to generation. Just like if your grandmother had a brooch that she gave to your mother, that your mother gave to you, that you gave to your daughter. That brooch would now be an heirloom because it's come down through multiple generations. Right? That's where the term heirloom seed comes from. It's handed down through generations and we know it produces true to type and it adapts regionally to where it's grown. So the only problem with hybrids is unless you want to do this kind of work, you're not going to be able to save your seeds and get a good repeatable result. That's it. That's the only problem at all with them. There's nothing, nobody's injected anything, nobody's mutilated it, nobody's gotten a gene out of a fish and used a virus to transmutate the gene. Nothing like that has happened. GMO that's exactly what's happened. A GMO seed is literally engineered at the genetic level. And the primary way this is done is by taking a virus and manipulating a virus so that it becomes a carrier of a specific trait you want to impart into the plant. And that gene and that trait is usually from something completely unrelated to the plant. For instance, there is a, a fish gene that's been transmutated into the cotton gene, gene, gene sequencing so that the cotton will kill the cotton weevil. It produces, the cotton produces a toxin. And you say, well, why would I care? I don't eat cotton. Yeah, but how many of your foods have cottonseed oil in them? All right? We do, they do the same thing with corn. And then they start stacking these genes. So they come up with a corn that's resistant to the rootworm. Now, they add another gene that allows the corn to be heavily sprayed with an herbicide without dying. Now they add another gene that makes the corn resistant to a corn borer, and they stack seven, eight, nine traits from all these different areas that have nothing to do with corn, transmutational viral insertion of the gene. That ain't good. That's the best way I can put it. There's a lot of people that say it's the same, and this is what they tell us today from our federal government, generally recognized as safe. It's corn. It doesn't matter. There's eight different genes from eight different species shoved into it. It's safe. The bigger issue, though, with things like Roundup ready soy and soy's in so many things that we eat out of the stores. It's not just all this genetic manipulation that they've done. It's why they did it in the first place. So what do you do after you make a soybean that can be sprayed with Roundup? Why would you, why would you make a soybean you can spray with Roundup so that you can spray it with Roundup? So what do you think they do? They spray the field with Roundup. And they plant it. In fact, they plant it and then they spray it. So it's been it's been cultivated, turned, plowed. In goes the the seed. Then they harrow it. Harrowing is after you you plow first. You put your seed down second. Harrowing is where basically you, you you cover the seed. And then they soak the field in Roundup. So nothing will grow except this super soybean. When it's about half grown the effect of the Roundup starts to wane a little bit and some of the weeds are becoming Roundup resistant because they're adapting and they just spray that sucker again. They'll spray it two to three times in a season. Now, not only are you eating a genetically manipulated soybean, you're eating a genetically manipulated soybean that's been drenched in glyphosate, which is what is the root chemical in Roundup. So you're ingesting large levels of glyphosate. If that soybean is fed to cattle and you eat the beef from that cattle, that glyphosate will literally pass through, bioaccumulate in the body tissues of the cow, and then bioaccumulate in you. That's a problem. That's why this is a problem. But if we are paranoid, and I know this is a long intro here, and I'm supposed to tell you how to say, seeds, this is probably going to be a longer show, but this is so critical that we know this because it tells us why it tells us the real problem and some of you guys when they wanted to label genetic foods in California that were opposed to it you said you're a libertarian I don't know if you get all this I don't know if you understand all this and let me tell you why I think we should be gen- labeling a genetically modified food we live in a world of regulations whether we want them or not and when I pick up a package and it says corn or corn syrup on there then I have a reasonable expectation of what that means I do not have a reasonable expectation unless I'm an informed person like myself of all of the stuff I just told you being part of that corn and how that is different from even conventionally grown corn without all of that being done to it or conventionally grown soy without all of that being done. I'm not talking about organic here. I'm just talking about not manipulating it. So it's not the same thing. So it should be labeled as what it is. And those of you that don't think so, I'd like to challenge you with this idea. Should it be possible for me to put a bunch of white powder... Into a bag, label it confectioner's sugar, and it's actually sweetened arsenic. And you'd probably say, no, you should not be able to do that. This is what these people are doing. It's soy meal. Well, soy meal sounds healthy, especially if you're not a paleo person and don't get the problem with all the carbs and the glyphos... um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Glycation, right? You don't get all that. So it's soy. You're expecting soy. You're not expecting Roundup. How about this? Instead of labeling as genetically modified, how about you put one of the ingredients in the list of ingredients it is it is uh, is glyphosate, and then with a little TM next to it, Monsanto's Roundup. That's that's one of the ingredients. It's in the food. It's you can test it, measure it. It's in there. Right, so if I can't label something that's arsenic and call it sugar and sell it, why should I be able to say that something is corn when it's actually corn plus glyphosate? Shouldn't I have to include that in my list of ingredients? And if you're an anarchist, I know you don't think so. Well, that's that's fine. We're not going to agree on that. But hopefully, everybody gets that now. So, one of the things I think that we need to understand that we can look at and and and, and make sure that when we say okay, after all of that. Look, I just want to buy seeds, Jack, and I want to know for a fact that I'm not feeding the beast, that I'm not getting genetically modified uh, genes. I I just want to be sure. Well, there's something called the Safe Seed Pledge. It was established in 1999 by high-mowing organic seeds, and they have not made it something that's exclusively theirs. They're just the people that started it. They want as many other seed houses out there to take it. And most companies that go through the process of taking it, which is basically just stating we won't do this. We will not sell anything that's genetically modified. We won't source from anything that's genetically modified. We just won't do it. We promise our seeds are not, it's not a promise they're all open pollinated. It's not a promise they're all heirloom, right? And if it's heirloom, don't worry about it. I don't care where you get it from. I don't care if you walk into Samanis Corporate Headquarters and get a packet of California Wonder Pepper seeds. I wouldn't do it. But those seeds are not GMO just because they came from there. It's not like cooties. That's how I think some of you guys are with seeds. It's like cooties. Well, somebody that worked for Montanso touched it and therefore now it's it's GMO. It doesn't work that way. If it did, it wouldn't be a multi-billion dollar business because we could all just touch stuff and it would turn, right? It's not like King Midas. But if you want to know for a fact that your seeds are all sourced from places where this is not going to happen, look for somebody that's taken the Safe Seed Pledge. And if you're buying from a company and you're not sure and they haven't, ask, call them up and say, hey, have you guys taken the Safe Seed Pledge? No? Well, are you going to tell me none of your seeds are GMO? Great. Maybe you should go take the pledge. Spread the message about it. I'll put links today. You fill out a form, you submit it. That's the whole process. It's not like some big hairy deal like getting organic certification or something like that. Um, it's run now, that program, even though High Mowing started it, is run by the Council Council for Responsible Genetics. And uh, you, you fill out a form and you send it in. And then basically you're on your honor that you've taken that pledge. And if you find out that you're not, then your your listing is revoked. It's that easy. So look for companies that have taken the Safe Seed Pledge, and if you want to do business with a company that hasn't, ask them to do it. It's and it's and if they say, well, it's complicated, it's not complicated. If you people can't fill out one form and submit it, then I can't buy from you. And I think that's one thing we can do to really, you know. Uh, expand this awareness. As a consumer-driven market, this is what the consumer wants. And these small companies are making a living on the fact that this is what we want. So if they're not aware that they can go to kind of this next level where they self-certify and say, hey, this is what we do, then make them aware of it and point out that you would be far more likely to buy from a company that took the safe seed pledge than one that didn't. Another way that we really can help ourselves is to start bartering, start exchanging seeds with each other because this is not complicated understand that 10,000 years ago men were saving seed and replanting it next year there's a lot of voodoo and mystery and what is right and what is wrong and the reality is if you take seed out of something you dry it out and then you keep it dry and you keep it from getting wet and you keep it from getting too hot and you plant it next year most of it will grow it's that simple if you start trying to want to start for two three or four seasons with your seed it gets more difficult, but here's what happens. The seed doesn't go bad unless it rots because it gets wet, right? What happens is the seed's germination rate will go into declination. It will decline. So you might save stuff with a real high germination rate, stuff that's really, really resilient, like um, c- cucumber seed, melon seed, all that stuff. Man, that just germinates its butt off. It's big seed. It's easy to work with. It's easy to clean. Pumpkin's another one. Squash. And if you plant 100 squash seeds from a saved batch of seed in a little test bed, and 96 of them germinate, you have a germination rate of 96%. And mostly what we do when we plant our seeds is everywhere we want one plant, we put in two seeds. With a 96% germination rate, and you put two seeds in a hole, you're going to probably get just about everywhere at least one of them to come up. And that way you can plant and plan your spacing and all. So... If you're saving into your second year and if you were to run a test and then 80 of 100 came up, you now your germination rate in your second season has dropped from 96% to 80%. How can we remedy this? Well, we save the seeds. We have lots of them. Plant three in a hole. If all three come up, great. What's interesting, though, and we can breed for any trait. If we then save seeds for a fourth or fifth season and when we plant that seed, Only 40% of it comes up. So put five in a hole, right? If you save the seed that season, one of the traits that you've bred into your plant is seed longevity. Now with some species, this doesn't work well. Your alliums, your garlics, your onions, these things generally, their germination rate goes to hell after one year. It almost doesn't even, and that's why a lot of times people buy these seed banks. They'll go plant the lettuce grows, the squash grows, the beans grow, and they get this huge packet of like Spanish sweet onions or something. They plant them, you know, four or five years after they bought this seed bank, and they don't grow worth a damn. And they think, well, I got ripped off. You didn't really get ripped off. That particular, they shouldn't even include those as a long-term seed. They just don't store well long-term. They're a one to two-year proposition at best. And different seeds have different lengths of time that they'll store well for you. Wheat will store for years. They found some palm seeds and wheat uh, grains in, you know, Egyptian ruins that were over 2,000, 3,000 years old. They planted them and some of them grew. So, and that wasn't like special or anything. It was just in a cool, dry space, in a pyramid or a tomb or what have you. So, What we need to understand when we're saving our seeds and we want them to store well, cool, dry, cool, dry. Those are your two big ones and dark. Cool, dry, and dark. I was on the Zello channel today asking if there were any questions. One was, what about refrigeration or freezing of seeds? Is it good for them? Does it hurt them? Does it harm them? Are there some you do it with and some you don't? The reality is seeds are designed to freeze. Seeds are designed to be completely okay when they freeze because if you think about it, Anywhere that an annual reseeding plant grows, that it freezes for any length of time, they're going to freeze in nature. And they have to be able to handle it to reproduce. So the reality is, yes, storing seeds in refrigeration or freezing will generally prolong their storability. It's also generally not necessary. Is there anything special you have to do, though, if you want to freeze your seeds? It's more critical than any other method you would ever store a seed, more critical that those seeds are completely dried out. Here's why. If those seeds are hydrated, there's water inside the cell walls to a high degree of that seed. It's not gone fully dormant. It's still retaining moisture. And you freeze water. What happens to water when you freeze it? It's the only thing in the world that does this. When you Anything else when you freeze it, it gets smaller, including the cell walls of a seed. But water, unlike any other substance known to man, when frozen, breaks the rules and expands. So if you have a contracting cell wall around water that's expanding, what ends up happening? A little tiny thing you can't hear, but inside there, if you were shrunk down like that Fantastic Voyage movie from the 60s or 50s, whenever that came out, you would hear a great big pop. That cell wall ruptures. So that's the only consideration, and they should be dry anyway. Let's start talking about actually how we save seed, how we make sure that we're doing it right when it comes to harvesting our seeds. Your easy stuff to save seeds from are things like beans, lettuce, peppers, and tomatoes. Bigger seeds, easier to deal with. Another question I had today was about fermentation. and When you save a a tomato seed, the fermentation process basically uh, will sanitize the seed. And it'll sanitize the seed so if it was infected with blight or something like that, it won't come back next year. The reality is that's not going to happen anyway. The reason we ferment tomato seed is because we're emulating, and this is a lot of times what we want to do with certain things that we want to save. We want to emulate the natural process by which the plant would reproduce if we weren't there, and then we want to do it a little bit better. So if you think about a tomato, it's hanging on the vine and nobody picks it. It gets really, really red, really, really overripe, really, really high in sugar, and it gets really, really heavy and soft, and eventually, plop, it falls down off of the vine into a gooey, tomatoy mess on the ground. And then all types of yeasts and wild bacteria and everything are able to get in there, and it starts to bubble and ferment just like anything with sugar will when exposed to wild yeast. Basically, it's producing alcohol and CO2. Okay, but it only does that for so long until it uses up all of the sugars. Once all the sugars are used up, that fermentation process dies down. You home brewers see this all the time. You put your wort in your fermenter. You have your yeast in there. It foams way, way up, and then like a, within a week, it's just f- you know one little ploop, you know, every fifteen minutes coming out of your airlock, and eventually that stops. And the fermentation, and you can let it sit there as long as you keep it from being exposed to air. Your beer, you can let that sit there for years. It won't do anything. It's done. It's, it's had it. All the fermentables have been fermented. That's what's happened with your tomato. Now, unlike your beer, which is mostly water, your tomato is not mostly water. It's being dried out. And then the membranes around those seeds will dry out and form like an envelope around them. And they'll just sit there through, it'll be too cold and the seed knows, I'm not going to germinate in the cold and it's going to be too dry because after you've had that dry period, once the tomato's dried out, it's wrapped in that kind of an envelope and a bunch of debris and crap falls on top of it and keeps it dark. Then the magic of spring comes and it gets warm and it rains, the seed gets wet, the envelope melts away and all those little seeds start coming up. And if you've ever left a tomato in your garden and had it naturally do this, you come out and there's like a hundred little tomato plants there. And then one super strong or two super strong ones outgrow their brothers and sisters, shade them out, and become the next generation. The plant creating its own natural selection. So the reason we take a tomato when we want to get seed out of it, and we crush it and mash it all up, right? Actually, what we do is cut it open and take all of its guts out and put it in a jar and fill it up with water. And put a, a piece of cloth over it. That way, yeast and air can flow in and out, but things like flies can't get in there. Put a string around it. We let it sit, and it eventually starts to ferment, and it gets a big layer of scum on it and all. And about a week later, we dump the scum off. We take the seeds that are all most all the good seeds now are going to be sitting at the bottom of the jar. We dump that into a colander. We rinse them off. And we set them out to dry. Right. That's it. But we've done what nature's done. We just speeded it up, and we've controlled it. And we've kept anything else from getting in there. We take those dry seeds. We put them into something like an envelope. right? We label them. We keep them in a cool dry space until spring. It's the same thing as nature. We're just having a hand in it. Things like beans. How does a bean reproduce itself? If you pick a green bean, while it's green, while it's nice and ready to be sautéed, you'll see little bean seeds inside it. If you get those out, let them dry and plant them, they won't grow They just won't, they haven't developed enough yet. If you let that bean go to where it starts to get tough and stringy and those beans in there start to get hard, they're getting close. If you let it go to where the outside bean pod becomes hard, where it can crumble in your hands and you would take those beans out as a shell bean now to make soup out of, where they have to be soaked in water and, and then cooked for a while. You've gone to that stage. That's the bean's natural process for reproducing itself. So what we have to do if we want to reproduce a certain type of bean that we're using as a string bean, for instance, a pod bean, we have to let it go into its shell stage, at least some of the plants there, and then we can pull those off. I'll tell you the the truth with bean seeds like that, you don't even have to shell them out. You wait till they're completely dry and they just come off the vine real easy for you. You can throw them in a paper sack, leave them inside their little shell thing, And in the summer, when you, or spring, late spring, when you go to plant them, start pulling them out of that bag and just pop them out of there. And that's a, you know why it's a great way to store them? That's how the bean would store itself. Now, why does this happen? Let's look at the progression of how the bean's storing itself in nature without our help. The vine of the bean usually climbs up to something. That keeps the bean off. It's not making surface contact with the ground. This cocoon of hard uh, pod forms around it and it blocks out light and it sheds water and it holds it on the vine. The vine usually can survive through the winter and stays off the ground. The vine begins to break down and rot. And by the time the spring rains come, at least some of those vines fall to the ground, some of those pods fall off, they get broken open, they get saturated with all that, that spring moisture, the bean shoves down a root, and up comes a new vine. right? So that means that, that that covering around that bean is actually a perfect storage medium, at least for a half a season. And remember, we're not storing them for a season, right? We're picking them in the fall, planting them in the spring. We're storing them for half a season. So you're just doing extra work if you take them all out, except they take up less space and all, but if you plant a large bed of beans every year and you just let some portion of them go for seed and you just put them in a brown paper sack and put them in a cool, dry place, they'll be fine. All of this can be taken to another level. We can put them in Ziploc bags, push most of the air out, drop in a little silica packet in there to help with any extra moisture, put them in something like an ammo can and stick that thing in the refrigerator, and we will enhance the longevity if we do that. If we make sure they're really, really dry, we could even drop that can down into a chest freezer and keep them in a frozen environment, and that will keep them even longer. But if you're going to use these seeds once every one to two seasons, it's all overkill. It's all not necessary. Most of my seeds are kept in a couple ammo cans, um, in Ziploc bags, and in those Ziploc bags is a piece of paper that tells me the variety why I saved it, in other words, uh, were, it was particularly large fruit, or did well during frost, or did well during drought, or whatever. And and when I saved them, when did those seeds go in that bag? You know, August 2012. And I know that's what those seeds are now. Now, why are they in an ammo can? Because it's airtight and super duper. And No, it's because I have lots of ammo cans. And if I stick them in there, they're not going to get crushed or mashed or whatever. And it's dark in there. It's dark in there, it's dry in there, and as long as they're kept somewhere, and usually they're sitting under my bed. right? So for all of this you know fanatical concept of like storing seeds for a hundred years, it's not really what we need to be doing. If you want a seed bank, that's fine, but you should be growing out your seed stock and re- re-energizing it at least every two to three seasons. And even going two to three seasons, just save lots of seed. Save it the way I've just told you, and then when, you're, when, you're, when your time comes to replant it, if you know it's been three years, increase your planting density. It's not going to go bad. It's not going to get toxic. It's not going to get poison. It's not going to kill you. It's not going to fall apart. It's not going to disintegrate. It's not going to turn into a GMO frankenfood. It's not going to do anything. It's a seed. It's designed to to stay dormant and wait for its opportunity to grow. And the fact that some of them will die, basically, they'll become inert, is what they're designed to do. Because that ensures that the strongest among them survive to reproduce. That's nature's way of increasing the vitality of all of these plants and regionally adapting them all by Mother nature self. So if we went and threw a whole bunch of seed from the same source on the ground, In Tennessee and in Texas. And they were seeds that could handle both of those environments. And it was a seed that would naturally reseed the way I've described. So that if you went back 10 years, there would be this clump that would still have at least some of this growing in amongst other plants of whatever that seed was. And the seed from both of those will be regionally adapted, one to Texas's climate one to Tennessee's climate. And they'll be much more suited for their localized environment. And nature's doing this every day with everything that reproduces itself. Either through perennial nature of just continuing to come back, right? Because it dies down to the roots and it comes back from the roots. Or from things that self reseed It's not like humans are the only people that know how to plant a seed. Nature knows how to do it. Um, there are some things that we need to understand, though, if we want to select, save our seed and do so successfully. One is what's called separation rules. And I'm going to give you a link in the show notes today uh, for the International Seed Saving Institute Seed Saving Guide. If you go there and you look up a type of plant, it will tell you every... I'm not going to get too much into the technical how to save. Like, Here's how you save a lettuce seed. Here's how you save a corn seed. Here's Because all that information you can look up. It's really simple and easy to understand. But the separation rule, you need to have an understanding of what's going on and why. Plants have three main ways... That they reproduce through the pollination process: wind, insect, and self pollination. Peppers are almost always self-fertile. In fact, I would say let's say let's put it a different way. Almost every blossom on a pepper, if not pollinated from another blossom, is going to be fertile and, and, and pollinate itself. They're what's called a perfect flower. And they're a small perfect flower, so even things like just the wind kind of shaking the pepper a little bit, some of the the pollen will get on where it needs to and contact uh, the the, the pistil so that it can pollinate the the plant, right, and and produce a pepper with seeds, and it's perfectly viable to pollinate itself. So there are plants that have a high uh, percentage of being self-pollinated. Okay, Then there is insect pollination. This is what we're most familiar with. We've talked a lot about bees lately. An example would be a tomato. They can pollinate themselves once in a while, but nowhere near at the level that peppers do, even though they're both, by the way, in the same fa- They're both in the nightshade family. Peppers and tomatoes are in the same family. But the structure of the flower is a little bit different. That's why you see a lot of little bees and mason bees and uh, pollinating flies and you want those on your tomato plants, especially your heirloom open pollinated. See, that's another thing. Some some hybrids don't need to be pollinated. They're completely self-fertile. Every flower produces just the way that it is. It was designed to do that through hybrid breeding out and proving out, right? Not all of them, but some of them. Okay. So now we've got the insects doing the pollination. So the separation distance comes in. If we have insect-based pollination. We need to put two varieties of let's say tomato far enough apart and maybe something in between them so that we minimize the cross-pollination by insects. Now, there'll be some, Right. There's always a little bit of hybridization going on if there's any similar species anywhere near where you're at, but the majority of the pollination is gonna be of the same type and we're gonna get very good results in saving our seeds. When you get one whacked out plant or something like that and we call it out and we, we don't save seed from that plant. Unless we get something interesting. And then we might want to say, okay, this is an interesting plant. It looks a little bit different. But when I save the seed, I want to put it in its own bag with its own information. I want to start tracking it down a new line of genetics, which is really fun and really cool. So we have that separation distance based on the insects. It's not that far, okay? But there's different distances for different plants, and you can look them up at the link that I'll give you. Then we have wind pollination. Wind pollination requires large separation distances or something like growing the seed stock in a screened in greenhouse to really you know minimize it and we could do some hand pollinating of what we want to save to to increase the the viability of proper pollination the big one here is corn corn separation distance technically 2 miles And we have had incidences of known gene crossing in corn crossing oceans in air currents over the oceans. That's how far. It's almost impossible to find corn today, no matter how. I don't care if it's Hopi blue corn. I don't care if it's country. I don't care what it is. There's not some invasion of genetic modification into it because it pollinates with the wind. And it was what Monsanto said would never happen, and of course it happened. But there's things we can do. Let's start with corn. So when you look at corn, you see a tassel form on the top, the ears form on the stalk, the silk comes out and gets all sticky, and at some point when you shake that tassel, you see pollen coming out of it. If you pay really close attention to your corn and you get like a paper sack, And you go to a few stalks of your corn when that pollen starts to fall. And usually it'll start falling a little bit before the tassels are even completely ready for it. And you keep collecting a little bit of um, uh, of pollen. And you watch certain ears and ears that you think are going to form really well. And you like the way they look. And you're going to say, that's what I'm going to let go to get hard shell corn out of. And I'm going to shell it. I'm going to save the seed out of that cob. Sprinkle by hand some of that pollen on those particular cobs put something like a, a zip tie around them or something loosely so they don't restrict the growth so that you've marked it. And you can even then take a little paper bag and put it over the end of your corn uh, until the tassel gets dry. Once the tassel's dry, it's not going to get pollinated any further. And then, you know, that ear you've manually pollinated. Maybe some pollen came in by the wind, but boy, that one should have nice plump kernels And that was a great, that's a good candidate for saving seed if you're worried about the cross pollination issue. The other place this happens heavily, squash and melons. And this is actually really easy. And people always say they don't want to do it when I talk about it because they say it's too complicated. It couldn't be less complicated. Every, uh, melon and squash has Flowers that are uniquely male and female. They're not a perfect flower, like a tomato or a pepper, where a pepper flower has male and female characteristics within a single flower and can basically reproduce itself, right? It can have sex with itself is the best way to put it. Um, A melon doesn't work that way. Um, A squash doesn't work that way. You look at a squash plant you see all these blossoms with these long stems, and there's nothing plump about them. And people go, why am I getting no squash? Because those are the male flowers. And the male flowers on squash vines will almost always, in fact, every one I've ever seen in my life, male outnumbers female because you want to ensure pollination. Now, you'll look and you'll see another stem, and it's like a fat little stem. And it looks like a little melon or a little squash, a little perfect miniature uh, pumpkin or a perfect miniature butternut squash or whatever it's going to be. And it'll have a blossom on it. And you'll see that blossom getting plumper and plumper, ready to open. And if you walk in the evenings, you'll look at some of those blossoms, and you'll say, that will be wide open tomorrow morning. This is when you make your move. You go find one or two male blossoms, maybe even from a different vine, but the same, in fact, it would be better to be a different vine, but the same species. You know I planted butternut here and butternut there, so you get yourself some butternut male blossoms. Pull all the the, the petals off them. There'll be pollen all on the inside part of the flower. Manually pull open your female flower. And take your male flower and just dab the pollen on there. Do it with two or three. Okay? Take a little bit of masking tape, close the blossom back up, and put some masking tape on it. Now take a zip tie or some way that you're going to put on the stem behind the, the soon-to-be new melon or squash. Something that indicates you've manually pollinated that one so you know that's one to take your seed from. And like what I do with like a pumpkin, it's just a big old pumpkin, you're not going to eat the, the skin, right? So you just take the pumpkin and any one of them that I cut off or something like that, I just take a black sharpie and I just draw an S on the on the pumpkin. Whenever I cut that pumpkin open to use it for whatever I'm going to use it for, that seed I take out, I clean all of the goop off it, I set it on a screen, I let it dry, and I put it in a bag and I label it. That's how simple this is. And people that say, well, that sounds complicated, it takes less time to do than it took me to explain it. It's so simple, so fast. And I'm going to tell you a secret. I don't always tape them shut for seed saving But I do it all the time, and it's why I get such high yields of my squash plants. As soon as I see, and a lot of times I don't go out there in the evening and see it's going to open tomorrow, but I'll go out in the morning, and I'll see a new female blossom open. As soon as I see that, man, I'm pollinating that sucker. Because instead of getting one in five that will eventually become a fertile melon or squash, I get... 80%, 85% of my female squash, melons, et cetera, uh, manage to reproduce. I don't do it much with cucumbers. I get so much pollinator action on my cucumbers, it's not necessary. But if I have two different varieties of cucumber growing, let's say an Asian long and a Boothby blonde, and I want to save seed, I'll do the exact same thing. I'll pull a female blossom open, I'll pollinate it with a male blossom, I'll tape it, and I'll put a little marker. I like to use the little zip ties, right? You just put them on the stem, because the stem's never going to get that fat. Just put a little zip tie there. Zip. Done. Right? When you go and take that plant, you know this is the one to take seeds out of. Now, cucumbers. Perfect example of where we have to let the plant do what it needs to do. When you want to save uh, seeds from your cantaloupe, seed from your watermelon, seed from your pumpkin, you really can pick it at the peak of freshness. You can eat it and just put the seed aside. With cucumber, you really can't. You really, it doesn't, the cucumber is eaten at a stage when the seeds are still stuffed and immature, that what, that's what makes it good. So your cucumbers, you want to let them go way past, they're huge, they're way too big, the seeds are hard, they start to turn a little brown. When they get like that, that's when you pick them. You can even leave them on the vine until they're ready to fall. They'll get like a gourd, and that's perfect. That's how That's how the plant reproduces. That big, heavy gourd sits there through the winter, keeps light and water out of the seeds, rots down in the spring, makes contact with the soil and up it grows. Right. So when I say keep your seeds dry, cool, and out of light, it's not like man figured this out. Nature's been doing this for generation after generation and will continue to do this for a very long time. Um, I do want to talk about um, making your own hybrids and why you might want to do such a thing because hybrid has been so villainized that we've lost touch with what it means and here's the thing I want you to understand. This is very important to why you'd want to do this because it's up to us to basically bring back varieties that are gone. Not things that have been forgotten about and somebody has a little seed somewhere and we get some of that seed and distribute it around and people start growing it and exchanging it and all of a sudden that variety is back. I mean recreate things and create new varieties. Remember, all of the heirloom seeds... Eventually, go back to wild stock, and this work was done, and the work stopped being done by individuals. So I talked earlier about a jalapeno and a bell pepper. Why would you want to do this? Why would you want to do such a thing? Well, it turns out if you take the pollen from a jalapeno to something like a California bell pepper, you get a pepper in the F1 generation that has no real spice. It doesn't get hot like a jalapeno at all. What the, the plant does is it, grows, it doesn't grow real tall. Like um, a California wonder, uh, California wonder pepper plant will, if you give it the right growing conditions. I have videos I can show you guys from my beds down in Texas. Right, California wonder pepper plants that were five feet tall, and people say when they get that big, they got too much nitrogen. They're not, they're loaded with peppers. They're hanging over like a tree, weighed down with peppers. Um, instead of getting big like that. They're a lot more jalapeno-like in their growth. They get this short, stout, where you don't have to stake them up when they get real big. You know, where they're more, they're more uh, able to hold themselves up. The peppers are smaller, thicker walled, and they, if you've ever seen a jalapeno when it's when it's producing, they produce this like insane amount of peppers. I have one picture from this year of our almost our whole huge Butcher Block Center Island covered in thousands, thousands of of jalapeno peppers. We didn't count them, but there had to be two or 3,000 peppers from one pepper bed. You get that kind of high-density production when you make this cross. Now, what happens when you plant the seeds that come out of that pepper into your F2 generation? I don't really know. But I know that some of them will reproduce true to type. And if somebody just took that and started running with it, eventually you'd come up with a completely new, open pollinated, reproducible, high density production, smaller, more compact, thicker walled, virulent bell pepper. And that's how everything we have happened. And the the reason I tell you that and say we have to start looking at doing this again is in 1900, if a $1 bill represented all the varieties of vegetables that we were able to grow, all the different heirloom lines of seeds that were out there, all the different choices that we had, do you know what we have left today of what was there in 1900? Three cents. So we got 97 cents worth of bringing back to do. And, and, and you know, you look at that compared to a $16 trillion debt the country has. It's a, the 97 cents is a big number. It's almost as big as the 16 trillion in reality because of how long this will take and how much work. So I challenge everybody to pick one thing you're going to do. Pick one cross you're going to make every year, a new cross and see what the F2 of the F1 generation is in the next year. And if it's something interesting, then take one little place, one little spot uh, of your garden and sequester it to that Project and understand that you're going to grow for every 10 plants you're going to grow, eight are going to suck the first year. But save the stuff from the two that were good. And then plant that space again. And maybe you'll get out of 10 plants, you know, and you probably want to plant 20 plants to do this, right? And some of you little gardens, maybe this is hard to do, but a lot of us, we can do this. You know, maybe this time you get four plants that that produce what you're looking for. You know, plant them too close to each other. Plant them real high density. And as soon as you see one starting to like, yeah, that's not really what I'm looking for. Cut it out. That way you can plant more in smaller space and only let the really good plants survive to produce. Two, three, four seasons into it, all of a sudden you're starting to get repeatable results. Now you've got something new. What's that worth? What's that worth that you've brought either something back that we lost and didn't even know we lost? We can do this with lettuce, right we get cross you can anything that you can manually take the pollen from one place to the other with you can get across and see what happens and lots of things will naturally cross and we shouldn't over worry about separation distances when i was uh, at the seminar with Seth holzer people asked about this he said and they said with all this polyculture interplanting how do you present, prevent cross pollination and it had to be explained to him like twice by his interpreters cuz he didn't even get the question and he came back with, "Why would I want to? All of my varieties are unique to me. They're part of my brand. I market this is is produce. There's these things are so well adapted to my little place in the Alpine mountains. You know, I've got this incredible quality. And when something doesn't produce well, I just don't say from it. That's all I do. So we can overthink these separation distances, but we can get it, for, for the old man's bravado in saying that." He does a lot of this manual pollination. He's come up with really unique varieties of potatoes, for instance, by actually pollinating and saving potato seed, not potato tubers. Saving seeds, actual seeds of potatoes, is a little more complicated than I want to get into today. But on the Zello channel, people wanted to know about saving potatoes and sweet potatoes and yams and things like that to plant next year. Basically, there's nothing about this that's complicated. You want to save your, your tubers in a cool, dry place just like you would if you were trying to save them to eat them. If the, if the plant is still anything close to something you would eat, it will grow when you put it in the ground if it's a good, viable tuber. As long as you don't treat it with any chemicals or anything like that. Keep it out of the light so it doesn't start sprouting on its own. Keep it dry, you know, store it the way you would store anything. But there's a, there's a, there's a cheat with potatoes. Regular, plain old potatoes, if you live in climates where they'll do well for you, it's difficult to grow them in places like Texas with the heat we have here and all. And potatoes are a cool weather crop, but this is the this is the way you can do this with you know a true four season climate. You you get your potato tubers, you plant them in, in the early spring as early as you possibly can without losing them to frost. You bring them through the harvest and you harvest them early before your summer heat comes in. You take all your big potatoes. Because these, this is not genetic selection here. Your small tubers are not small gene tubers. They're all clones of each other. All these potatoes are clones of each other. They just formed later, so they haven't gotten as big. So they're carrying the same genetics as the larger tubers. So you take all your small ones that aren't as good for eating, and you keep them in a cool, dry place. And if you can keep them about 50 degrees, it's perfect. Save them until the right time to plant them in the fall. Plant a fall crop of potatoes. Take all your big ones for eating, your small ones aside. Maybe leave a few big ones for seed. Put those aside. You only have to save them now through the harshest part of winter and get them back in the ground. So one great way to make saving your potatoes easier is instead of trying to save them for a full season, to save them basically for a quarter season. Save your late spring harvest through the summer and plant at the beginning of fall take your end of fall harvest and save your seed through winter and plant in early spring that's the best way to get two crops a year of your potatoes and minimize how long those tubers have to survive sweet potatoes, much more longer term planting and you have to make them last through to spring, but basically you're going to plant them in the spring and you're not going to harvest them until fall anyway, so it takes longer Here's how you work that out though and really get this going good. You take your sweet potatoes and you plant them with other things around them at a density that you maybe be a little uncomfortable with. In other words, maybe you plant something like sorghum. Okay? But you plant your sorghum at space twice the distance you normally would. Right? So they're not as dense. So you, you, you reduce your density. You give more space. You plant your sweet potatoes in and around the, the, the base of the sorghum. They'll grow just great like that. And potatoes will climb a little bit, but not really, really heavy. Not like a squash bowl or anything. They won't pull your, your sorghum down. When your sorghum's ready to harvest, your potatoes probably can still go a little bit longer. So you harvest your sorghum and you let the potatoes really come into their own. You give them, and you could do this with corn. You could do this with tomatoes. I had sweet potatoes everywhere on two of my beds this year. No problems, no problems in really heavily competing with every, everybody else. And as your sweet potato vines grow, keep digging up holes and sticking the vine in and covering it, and it'll put down another set of roots. And you can end up with a huge, massive amount of sweet potato vine. This is the problem, though. We as gardeners tend to baby our stuff. We give it lots of fertility, lots of moisture. If it looks even a little bit dry, we're going to water it again, what have you. Sweet potatoes and yams are native to tropical and subtropical climates where it doesn't freeze. So the primary way that they go and seek forth and multiply is by spreading by vine and looking for any patch of earth where they can put down roots and reestablish themselves. And one potato could literally cover a football field given enough time and the right conditions and a lack of competition of other plants. So its primary goal is grow, grow, grow. When it starts to get stressed... And this means, in many times, gets pretty hot, like the end of the summer. Summer's going to end, even in a tropical climate, and dry. Right. So in a tropical climate, you usually have two seasons, distinctive seasons, a wet and a dry season. The dry season is short-term, but that tells these tuber plants, you're running out of capacity to put down new roots, you got to go into survival mode, start taking all of that photovoltaic solar energy you're collecting with your leaves and start sticking it down in the ground and develop those tubers. So the biggest problem people have with not getting enough of a yield on sweet potatoes is you're too nice to them at the end of the year. Let them stress a little bit. Let them get hot. Let them get dry. Unless they look like they're going to dry up and die, do nothing. And you'll get much better tubers set. If they start to look really, really stressed... Give them a little bit of irrigation, but don't overdo it. Give them just enough to cope. Now, treat them good. Spring and summer, it's that end of summer going into fall where you want to stress them, and they'll put down great big tubers for you. I put a picture of one of our sweet potatoes on uh, on YouTube, uh, not YouTube, on uh, Facebook this year, and everybody said it looked like a great big giant butt, and it did. It looked like a huge butt, uh, but it was a great, you know, big huge sweet potato that we got by stressing it and letting it stress. So now, when it comes to sweet potatoes, how do you plant sweet potatoes when you've saved your tubers through to next year? What do you You want to make something called slips. Now, this is actually really easy to do, and with a big sweet potato, you might be able, from one sweet potato, to get as many as 50 slips. Each slip can produce a vine. Each vine can produce multiple tubers. So you can get a lot of action by saving a couple sweet potatoes. So what we're going to do is we're going to cut the sweet potato in half. And we're going to put it in a bowl, a dish, or a jar where the bottom of it is in contact with water. We Usually the way people do this is like the old way you would uh, get an avocado pit to, to sprout by putting toothpicks in it and suspending the bottom in water. Put it in a sunny, warm window. Right, It needs to be nice and warm. And all of a sudden, little sprouts will start coming up off of your sweet potatoes. You'll have sprouts everywhere. Then what you want to do is you go and you gently... Just pull the little sprout, and you want to get them to a point where they're about, you know, a good inch and a half, two inches in length when you take that sprout off. So it's got enough viability to do its thing. And then you just sit it with a little bit of the stem in water in the same type of environment you had. To... It'll start to. Now that you've removed it from its tuber, it's going to do the same thing the vine will do. That's coming across the ground and comes in contact with the ground. It'll start to put out roots. As the roots develop, it'll keep growing, right? And it's got enough energy that it can get up to a respectable size say three, four, five inches with a good root system before it really needs a lot of nutrients again. It's a, They're a very hardy make-do-with-what-they-have species. It's why they're great for the garden. Once they're like that, we have two choices. If I'm not yet ready to put them into the ground, I can pot them just the way you would buy them at a nursery. They sell them all over the place now for both agricultural use and gardening and for landscaping because they're a beautiful vine. You can put them in smaller pots with dirt so they can start getting some nutrient and you can keep them in a greenhouse or wherever you keep your plants until they're ready to plant. And then you can just take them out of that pot put them in the ground. Or if it's a you're in a climate where by the time you've done this, they're ready to go in the ground, get them in the ground. That's it. And that's why they're one of the best plants for the homesteader. They really are. They produce a huge yield. You can companion plant them with anything that grows high vertically without them competing with each other. Um, They are a good source of nutrient, carbohydrate, and mineral. They have a low glycemic index, so they're okay for the paleo folks out there like me. Uh, You can't eat tons of them, but you can eat a little bit of them all the time, and it's probably the least damage you'll do from any kind of plant like that. They're extremely hardy, and here's the part that most people don't know. The leaves are great. The leaves are incredibly edible, as the deer uh, explained to me this year, by eating a lot of my sweet potato vines down. But they just kept coming back anyway. But you can go out and cut leaves off your vines and take those leaves and put them in a salad or stir-fry them with vegetables. They're great. So you get two yields. You get a leaf yield and you get a tuber yield. And you get a storable result. And you just store some of them longer than others so that you can put them back in the ground and regrow them. And as long as you have access to water and something to suspend them like a toothpick, and you can make toothpicks with a pocket knife and some twigs, yeah, you do to, um, you can reproduce them every year over and over and over again. The important thing to understand, the difference in the two ways I've told you to save potato tubers or sweet potato tubers versus seed saving, you're not crossing genetics you're cloning the plant will be a genetic duplicate of the plant from the year before if you wanted to start adapting you have to allow the production of flowers pollination and save true seed and it's a, it's it's more it's not hard it's just more complicated and you have lower um lower germination rates with potato seed and sweet potato seed but it can be done Sweet potato, though, is a very long term to get into that seed production, much longer term than a potato. So it's something that you can grow a lot of sweet potatoes in the north, but if you want to get into genetically adapting them, you really kind of look at the south. So the best thing to do is just find the variety that you like best, that grows best in your environment. And, and go with cloning. It's, it's easy. It's what most growers do. And I've got a, uh, a page I'll give you that shows you exactly how to do this with sweet potatoes. It's really pretty simple. With normal potatoes, You you save your potatoes. There's eyes on them, little places where sprouts are going to come up. You want two to three eyes on each piece of potato that you plant. So if you have a potato with like six eyes, three on each side, you can cut it in half and plant two halves of a regular potato, and and they'll do just fine for you. But those of you in the South, I really recommend that you consider sweet potatoes instead of conventional potatoes. And as far as I'm concerned, they're just more nutritionally uh, good for us. The Japanese purple sweet potatoes. I grew some of those this year. A listener sent me a couple of, of purple sweet potatoes to do this with. And they were phenomenal. They're great. They're like eating. They're not really, really heavily sweet, um, the way that like the conventional orange-looking potato that you buy in the store is. They're a lot less sweet. They're still sweet, but nowhere near as sweet tasting. And they almost taste like a great big buttered regular potato. Uh, they're my favorite. I'm going to grow tons of those things uh, once we get relocated. What I want to finish up with, though, is why do this? Look, I mean, if you're not a farmer. If you're planting anything from a couple beds and containers uh, to a really sizable, let's say, quarter acre garden, buying seed and even buying, in some instances, started plants is very affordable and the return of investment is solid. There's, there's no economic reason for the person growing 10 garden beds to really worry about buying seed. Seed's cheap. When you think about how many you know seeds come in a couple packets. So what is the bigger reward than monetary reward here? Now, we're all into self-sufficiency here. So we know that if we can't get seed for any reason, we can continue to be viable on our own. That's, that's great. But it's really about regional adaptation. If you save the seeds from a well-known open pollinated uh, plant, and you don't even... Do anything special. You don't do any of your own hybrid improving proving out or whatever. You just decide, I like brandywine tomatoes. And my main tomato crop is going to be brandywines. And I, any other tomatoes I plant, I'm going to keep them far enough away with a separation distance so that those brandywines are going to have a, a low uh, preponderance of cross-pollination. I might even do some manual pollination with a Q-tip and do some marking so I know which ones to save. And I'm going to save the best tomatoes I'm going to get seed out of. And I'm going to do that every year. That's all I'm going to do. And I'm, I'm going to even buy all my other seeds, but I want my brandy wines to be this this heirloom. Five, six, seven seasons into it, it's still a brandy wine tomato, but it's a locally adapted brandy wine tomato. It's completely different if you're in Georgia doing that from the, the brandy wine tomato that somebody's growing in Pennsylvania. They'll look very similar. They'll have a lot of similar flavors and characteristics, but there will be a sense of place in them, what a a wine sommelier would call a terroir, a sense of place. But they'll be extremely well adapted to your backyard, your conditions, where you're at. They'll become like a native of your climate. It makes me think of when I used to go fishing in Pennsylvania. The, The trout streams were not really heavily populated with trout in a lot of places, uh, except in trout season where the state would come in and stock the fish. But depending on the type of stream it was, if it was an easy to access stream, they would get fish out really heavily because people figure you stock them, keep them. And the state didn't make a big habit of stocking a lot of fish that were small, so small you couldn't keep them, that were below the length limit. So most of them got pr- fish pretty heavily. And the only native trout to the area is actually a species of char, even though it's called a trout, is the brook trout. And so there were some streams with some native brook trout that were legitimately native brook trout in it, but some of the streams that had stretches of it that were pretty hard to fish. Some of those, you know, brown trout and rainbow trout, much less degree with rainbow trout. They didn't seem to reproduce very well. But the German brown trout, and they're from Germany, that's uh, so why they're the German brown trout, does really well in Pennsylvania. The climates of Pennsylvania and in Germany are very, you know, hence the heavy influence of German uh, immigrant agriculture. Uh, and Dutch immigrant agriculture into Pennsylvania. So those brown trout, as long as they're not caught out, and there's a couple of them in there, and they get the right conditions, they'll breed. So you would maybe go fishing, especially in the summer, when all the stupid hatchery-stocked brown trout were caught out. And I would usually be out fishing for brookies, native brook trout. And occasionally you'd catch a brownie. And when you pulled this fish out of the water, it didn't look like the fish that you would catch in the main season when they were being heavily stocked. And it looked so different that you knew it wasn't just a, a holdover. It wasn't just one that was stocked this spring and now it's August and it's still there. Uh-uh. There was a bright fleckling of red to them. And when you filleted them or cut them open to gut them, either way, the meat was orange like a salmon. Now, that wasn't a genetic change, the orange color. The orange color is that fish has been living in that stream for so long, and it's been living on uh, crustaceans and insects for so long, the carotenoids change the color of the flesh. And even a fish you just stalk, if it survives for a couple seasons, it will get that color. But it seemed like these – sometimes you catch these fish, like, they're only, you know, like, they're like 8 inches, and I think the size limit was like 7 on on trout there. You know, 8 or 9 inches – and you know, well, if that fish made it around the circle, so to speak, it was stocked in in 2000, and now I'm catching it in the the late summer of 2001. It had been there for a year and a half, and it was stocked at a seven inch fish. It's not going to be an eight or nine inch fish. It's going to be a good foot long at that point. You know, it's going to have grown quite a bit. And it's not. It's like, and sometimes you'd even catch them where they're not. You had to let them go because they're not legal. They're six six inches, six and a half inches. That fish was born in that stream. And when you caught one large enough to eat and you filleted that fish and you ate it, it was a totally different experience than eating a stock trout. It tasted a lot like a salmon. And the native brookies, if I didn't keep a lot of them because I just didn't want to hurt their population, but occasionally you keep a couple of them. That orange, deep, almost red orange, almost like a coho, a wild caught coho salmon, if you know what I'm talking about. That's what that flesh would look like. And it was a totally different experience because that fish, even though it's native to Germany, had become an adapted native to that stream. When you save your own seed and plant it again and again and again, you're causing that process to happen with your plants. And you're talking about a plant that is uniquely and specifically adapted. And even if it, like I said, you California wonder pepper, get them anywhere. Right, You can get seeds for that plant anywhere. It's one of the best-known open-pollinated pepper plants. Brandywine tomato, uh, Cherokee purple tomato, uh, lettuce like green towers, uh, romaine, uh, or black-seeded Simpson, or any of these things that we can save the seed of. When you save it over and over again, even though it's still really black-seeded Simpson lettuce, it's not. It's Jack Spierko's black-seeded Simpson lettuce that's adapted to Jack Spierko's environment or your environment. And it becomes its new heirloom. It's something you can now, if your family and friends are nearby in, in in the same region, pass on to them. And they can plant. And eventually, if we all start doing this, our backyard gardens, our front yard gardens, our, our little mini uh agricultural uh you know, micro agricultural incentives, our micro farms, our, our farms that are just small farms, will become heavily, heavily adapted and they will outproduce all of this commercial bullshit. This is how everything was done until about 70 years ago. This is how every farmer saved his seed. And farmers and even gardeners, they knew their seed and their plants intimately to where if something wasn't going right, they knew it before it was a big problem, they could take corrective action. They had grown that seed so many years in a row. Even though somebody else would look at their pepper patch and go, they look pretty good this year. Tom, Tom's going, no, nah, we, I gotta, I gotta, something's not, they're not quite the right dark shade of green they usually are. They're either not getting enough water. I need a little fertility. They knew there's a pest here. Something's not, something's not the way it's supposed to be. And they were able to, you know, and that plant also would then say, well, I gotta make it, and it was already really adaptable. So if we got through whatever that was. That the the production it had in the next year, it might be a little lower. Maybe the yield of peppers per square you know foot is down, but the pepper itself now is another thing that it's added to its. The, I'm the tough. Pe- I made it. I made it, and I reproduced and put this in the ground next year, and we'll fight it again next year, and we'll get stronger. That's what's in this for you. Is this and it, it takes seasons to do it. But the good news is a lot of the work's already done. These good, adapted, uh, open-pollinated seeds that are out there that you can get from great companies um, that that, that specialize in doing just those things are already really strong and really resilient. All you're doing now is saying, okay, well, let's turbocharge it, and let's not just make you adapted to Texas. Let's not just make you adapted to northeast Texas. Let's make you adapted to the one-acre property that I inhabit To this specific place with this particular solar exposure, amount of wind, soil type. Let's, let's, let's turbocharge that. And then I really encourage some of you to choose one or two crosses to work with and prove out. If, if a thousand people each worked, worked out over the next five to seven years, one new cross, we'd have a thousand new varieties in five years. It seems ridiculous at the individual level to think you're going to make a difference. But a 1,000 people doing this is not a big deal. In fact, maybe that's another little website we could throw together someday that just, what am I working on? So that people know, well, this guy's doing this. Maybe I'm just going to flip it around. This guy's doing bells with jalapenos, but he's taking the jalapeno to the bell. I'm going to take the bell to the jalapeno and see what I get. Or I'm going to pick a different variety of bell. Right, and start naming these things, and start proving them out, and start going. This one never worked. Right, that would be a great thing, you know. Because th- sometimes you'll do a cross, and the first generation sucks. Well, that's not really worth working with. Or the first generation works, but the second generation, you plant fifty seeds, and all of the- none of them reproduce true the to type. There's nothing to work with. There's nothing to go. Well, it wouldn't it be good that a guy says, "I'm going to do that." Goes, y- yep. Tom made that mistake. I'm not. Well, I'm not doing that one. I'm going to change that variety. Or I'm going to change the direction of the cross-pollination. I'm going to go the other direction. Or I'm going to change both varieties or whatever. And if we, So I think that maybe building that kind of a database would be a great idea as well. Um, I think that's awesome. Maybe that's something like uh, uh, all things plants. They already have a great plant database. Maybe Dave over there maybe could take that on and just kind of add that to what he's doing. I'll reach out to him. But if you know of anybody that's already doing something like this, I'd love to hear about it. This is what we need to be doing, folks. It's not just about saving your seeds so you can survive the apocalypse. It's let's let's get our 97 cents back. They took it away from us, and we let them. Our grandparents, who we have so much admiration for, let them. They were sold a bill of goods. Here, Here's this great new seed, this great new chemical. Put this on the ground, and don't worry about it. And all of these varieties died off, and they're gone. A lot of them have been found. Things that people thought were gone have been found. Seed Savers Exchange has done amazing work with that and the listings that they do and finding people to exchange seeds with or buy seeds from is great. But a lot of it's just, it's just gone. It doesn't exist anymore. You want it back? Like most things that we lose, nobody's going to give it back. We've got to take it back. And that's how you can actually look at things like saving seeds and see it as an act of modern rebellion. There's many places we need to fight. We need to fight for our rights everywhere. But if we don't fight for our rights to feed ourselves locally, how much good can our other rights really do for us? When someone else controls our food supply, we control nothing. The good news is this is one place where everybody, even people with a few containers on a backyard patio can take it back. So join me. And let's—I uh, I did this this early, so you could be thinking about this as you're planning your gardening work for next year. Let's take it back together. Let's take it back one plant at a time. And damn it, you know what? I'd love to see somewhere near the end of my lifetime most of that ninety-seven cents reclaimed. Even if it's new, completely new and different things, I'm fine with that. But let's bring the variety back. Let's bring the local adaptation back. And realize this is something, yes, you can do. And with that, this has been Jack Spirika with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we